Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap, a podcast featuring Bhavani Sylvia Maki, an international yoga teacher, musician, and author of the Yogi's Roadmap, the Patanjali Yoga Sutra as a Journey to Self-Realization. I'm Shanae Trudeau, a student of Bhavani and a teacher of yoga. These are conversations from the heart. The Yogi's Roadmap podcast explores yoga as a journey of compressed evolution off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Bhavani believes that engaging in the full science and art of yoga uplifts us, deepens our connection with authentic self and to the source of joy within for personal growth and deep transformation. Bhavani Sylvia Maki has been studying the art and science of yoga for nearly 40 years. In her teaching, she interweaves the insights she has gathered into a holistic exploration of the microcosmic and macrocosmic self. Dedicated to exploring yoga in its complete expression, her teachings are steeped in the traditions of Patanjali's classical eight-limbed yoga, with an emphasis on integrity of alignment and the use of yoga as a powerful tool for healing. This project was conceived out of the desire to have more, deeper, intimate conversations with my teacher and a request from one of Bhavani's own teachers, Rama Joyti Vernon, who once said to her, let's get you out of the jungle and into the world. Bhavani lives on the island of Kauai, Hawaii with her husband, Ray, and their son, Nico. Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap podcast, off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Awesome. Uh, Bhavani, it's so wonderful to be here with you. I'm Shanae Trudeau, back again with Bhavani Maki for another episode of the Yogi's Roadmap podcast. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or the podcast application of your choice. Positive reviews mean so much to podcasters. We thank you for spending your time with us today. Welcome, Bhavani. Thank you for having me. Wow. What a, what a journey. <laughs> We've done a lot of these episodes and I've been just reflecting. I'm, um, as, as I'm loving the yoga sutra, it occurred to me, I'm like, why, why Patanjali's yoga sutra? Why not some other text that I'm diving into? And honestly, it's, it's for me, it's because I get to learn with you. <laughs> So I would ask you, you know, why this text for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, like logistically speaking or classically speaking, we're directed to particular texts. Um, so out of just knowing that there is, there is, um, you know, the gift of our elders and those who've come before us and they're like, look, here's these distillations. So I referred to those texts early as I was asked to teach. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to pull it together. So Garanda Samhita, Shiva Samhita, um, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the Gita I'd already been introduced to, you know, you have the Mahabharata and you have the Yoga Sutras. And when you're looking at them, you can tell that you can kind of tell the the ethos of the time. Um, as I've mentioned before, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, it is a medieval text. And so it's actually um, even the fact that Hatha Yoga has six limbs and it doesn't include Yama and Niyama. So that that already sets it apart because it doesn't talk about yoga so much as self-care or about the evolution of culture. It's, um, and Hatha, the way that they, they interpret it is their iteration is that it's to force prana. So a lot of the practices are very contractive. Um, there's even some things that are quite barbaric, honestly, in my, in my perspective, you know, like inserting a catheter into your sex organ, 
drawing up water, then milk, then ghee, then mercury. It's like, no, I'm not going to do all of that. Um, you know, so the, the point of view is kind of more about your own forcing yourself through exercises of control. Um, it, it already like makes my hackles go up. So it's, it's not really so much integrated for the householder. Then you have the Gita, which is wonderful. Um, and there's so many interpretations and there's so many agendas behind it. It's, um, there's a lot of valuable knowledge. I mean, the, the, the Gita is like in the center of the Mahabharata, which is the largest intact, um, tradition i mean it was oral at first but uh written it's it's intact it's over a hundred thousand verses of which each are like four stanzas so it's just the volume is overwhelming um but there there's definitely gems in there and there's a lot to be interpreted of course it's always about who's interpreting and then you know taking that on as far as the yoga sutra it's very direct um, you know, it, 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 it's very concise and it's for the practitioner. And of course it includes, you know, Patanjali doesn't call it Ashtanga. He calls it Ashtau Anga, but he speaks about, um, you know, like what we're navigating, right? When this is, this is about consciousness. And so the practices are about expanding consciousness and about relationship, and it's very, very pragmatic. And yet, at the same time, it's also very elastic in which you could, you know, I have one student who's doing the Yoga Sutra mentorship with me, um, and she, um, Donna Gardecki, she's like one of the heads of the Karate Association in the country of Canada. And it's like being able, she just sees how all of these teachings are completely applicable with that other discipline. So whether you're a Hindu or a Jew or Baha'i or, you know, follower of Islam or, you know, whatever it is, um, it allows for that personal sovereignty where it's more of an internal path of self-discovery and self-care and it does and it is about um you know when we do that work of transformation even he even mentions you know this spirit of rittam you know which is like we're we're attuning ourselves to the greater impulse which is the evolution of culture culture you know evolution is going to pressurize us it's going to push us into the corner but it's not just about your personal sovereignty it's about, um, you know, being a better human or being the best human that you already are and also leaning into those good graces within yourself and the fact that there are many cross currents in life. So how can you move with authenticity? How can you be in this path of discovery? Um, and so, yeah, I really love it for that. I really, and because it's so... Um, you know, it, 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 it's focused on the practice, but it also speaks about our internal experience because where we are is where we are. It has nothing to do with what we've achieved or, um, you know, it's kind of depressing and exciting at the same time that where you are in the moment is where you are. And that's really, it's, um, it, 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 it's like, it's not about a goal. It's about engaging in that process where you have the choice. Am I going to live in the wound because it's familiar? Or am I going to take the risk and tune into that part of me that wants to heal and reclaim my wholeness? So for me, it just feels, you know, where the Gita is wonderful, it can be overwhelming. The sutra are to the point. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I'm just taking notes. I mean, <laughs> I've known you for many years and to just have have that um, broader picture painted is so, so useful. And I just want to clarify, when you 
say self-care, what do you mean? Well, I mean, um, you know, it's like, you will experience upheaval. You will experience cross currents. You're going to experience oscillations in your life internally and externally. And the way I look at Nirota is like, how do we not only self-regulate, because that almost seems constrictive in some ways, but how do we develop self-understanding so that we can get out of that, you know, do we have repetitive, like, oh gosh, I'm feeling misunderstood. I'm feeling oppressed. I'm feeling compressed. Um, you know, how, how can I look at these, these, um, compressive forces of evolution where we're going to have to, as Rama would say, wrestle with angels, you know, and work things out and find our own way. So then it gives you, you know, then in the second pada, it gives you really practical um, insights on practice and what you're, what you're struggling with. So that once you, you know, he calls it Viveka Kyati, which is our next sutra in the mentorship and the one that you did for the, you know, your presentation, um, you know, that discernment, it's not so much about an intellectual discernment, but like understanding your body language. And when you come to discernment, do you feel a greater sense of connection? Do you feel more alienated? Do you feel like you're learning and you're growing? And yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. So, you know, there's, it's like very practical in that it tells you, you know, kind of titrates down what these frictious energies are in life. By having Viveka Kyati, Viveka means like your ability to really discern and Kyati means to put a name on it. So it's like diagnostics. I always think of like, um, you know, back in the 70s, CB radios and trucking were really big and it's like, what's your handle? So Kyati means to have a handle on something. And when you can call it for what it is, without labeling or compartmentalizing it, but when you can, oh, this is, this. there's fear in my house. All right, even the wisest of sages have fear. There's, you know, what is true. What It said that when there's fear in your house, you're sitting with truth or that you're being pushed out of your comfort zone. What do I have to be afraid of? Then you take care. You, 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 there, there's tools and insights that are given to help you get out of, um, you know, the vritti state, which is the involuntary states of mind and emotion, where we're literally spinning our wheels and grinding our gears. Um, so how can we like recenter and understand that? Yeah, it's a personal experience for me, but everybody goes through this, and I'm I'm going to get through this. So by having those those teachings and certainly yama and niyama it's not so much um asking you to do different but again to lean into your resilience and lean into you know what i love about yoga is it says that you weren't born with original sin you were born with original goodness and sin um you know, the word instead of sin, Patanjali uses is karma. It's like when we do something over and over again, and it's, it's non-productive, it's aklishta or klishta, that is, and it's interference. Yeah, that's where, you know, like that, that inner conscience tells us like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this again? You know, so it, it's, um, you know, shame in in the the healthiest expression would just be a sense of conscience where it's like, hey, I can do better than this. And I have the power to take personal responsibility and um, change the way that I react into a new response. So that kind of self-care is where you learn to understand the nature of your psychology. Um I mean, he 
beautifully explains what consciousness is, right? And when you understand the many components, the many aspects of self, you can maximize them and also understand where they're limited and step in, you know, he says you could get stuck on any level for years. So he's giving you all of these insights and shows you, um, you know, you're going to think about things with logic. The logic doesn't always change the way you feel or deep desire, right? So then you have to go into that, you know, that that field of your emotions and see how much of its residue from the past. You got to see, okay, am I coming from a, um, like, am I moving from the splintered part of parts of self? And when I'm moving from splintered parts of self, and I don't feel that my coherency is big enough to hold all these pieces, then there's seepage, right? Residue comes in of other people's stuff. Or we maybe um, try to control and fix and, you know, other people's lives and we interfere in their lives. So it gives us a sense of that container and we need a container, And then it even speaks about like, okay, we need an energy source. Like what are the ways we can access energy? Um, In the end, you know, we could call it like the Sufis say, it's love, you know, it's love or Ishwara. It's like that, that desire within you for authenticity to experience yoga as catharsis, where we, we do the tapas to just like, you know, sweat it out, um, shake it out, breathe it out. Um, how, you know, there's many ways that the body releases the imprints. And then, you know, through using practices, self-understanding, self-study in tandem with the metaphysical teachings, it also means to fill the self with sweetness or even taste your own sweetness And then suddenly, you know, we get out of this infantile perspective of thinking we should have it all figured out or, you know, yeah, as much as we're an architect of our destiny, it only goes so far, right? There's, there's bigger forces moving through us and that they're benevolent forces. So then we start to experience our creative Shakti. And as I shared, I think it was a couple of Um, sutra mentorship classes a while ago, you know, spirit, purusha, or um, pure, unconditioned, unadulterated awareness is like Lord Shiva in his form of Shava, Shavasana. It's dead to the world. It's um, inert, doesn't want to engage, does what withdraws from matter. And then the goddess is Shakti or Prakriti, she mounts him and she arouses him. And she says, look at me, make love to me. And he finally opens his eyes to her for world realization, self-actualization and self-realization. So I love the way that, you know, to me um, and to many others, you know, this isn't just my perspective, but it's grounded in deep, deep, um, you know, in the deeper culture. It's a form of Tantra in which we use the life experience and we we're, we use it and we offer ourselves into it as opposed to trying to isolate consciousness. So I love all of that. I love the way that it um, speaks to our humanity and invites us to look at horizontal growth instead of this thinking of growth as being very vertical, which can be top heavy. And there's plenty of people who are really, you know, I mean, there's, it's, it's all over Netflix and whatnot, you know, these, these people who speak in very, um, you know, sublime ways And then they have this seething kind of under life in which they cut off parts of themselves, which Patanjali says is dangerous. It's not only dangerous to you, but it's dangerous to your community. So it's really a path of transparency um, and self-honesty and compassion. Yeah, it it really speaks to me as a human. 
as a woman, as a mother, as a wife, as somebody who's living in the world, I find it really, really um, supportive. Thank you. That's so beautifully articulated and it's so inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of, you know, it's like you don't, you know, we don't live in a vacuum and all the other people that have supported you in this journey. It's like, talk to me about lineage, the importance of having teachers who have teachers and how does one honor their lineage of teachers and it's kind of a two-part question. How might one honor their family line, even when they're estranged? Because that's also part of our lineage. So you can pick and choose or answer them together. Very pick. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will say, um, you know, having like even more than a teacher is that sense of mentorship where it's a commitment where somebody takes you on and you take them on and there's real love and care and interest. And we've discussed this a lot. It's not where you're showing up, you're ordering your burrito and you leave, you know, but it's like, there's there, you're being raised in a tradition and it's mother yoga that's raising us. And then it's a a lineage of love where so many people have fear around commitment um, or they, you know, the kind of relationship that you build in yoga is very different because it's not about ego fluffing. It's about honesty and transparency in which you really offer yourself um, to that guidance. And that teacher is going to sometimes feed you fire and sometimes feed you nectar. And they're going to be growing you in this process. And it, it it takes a long time to see someone and, and see what their needs are and their needs are changing. So traditionally, you know, you spend as much time with the teacher as the teacher said, and definitely like five to seven years. And then you would, um, you know, then you have that container and the teacher is showing you like, okay, this is, this is the energy source they're giving you the energy of love, which is this legacy of like, it's, you know, it's the loving thing to do is to pass it on. It's been shared with you. Um, so there's that energy of love and real care and commitment. And then giving that, and then sitting together in Sangata, where there's community and you're, you're able to kind of see yourself and your neighbors Um, And and it's like, oh, I haven't gone through that yet. Or, oh, I've been through that. So there's the sense of family, which is so unique. And then eventually, you know, it's time to go, you know? And and it's, I I remember even Patabi Joyce saying that, like, you go now. Like, it's easy to just sit here at the tit of the guru, but eventually you have to be weaned, but you've been given the practices and now you need to, have that container in the world and go out into the world. But then you would visit your teacher. There was, there was revisitation, you know, maybe annually where you would come in and have a a real fusion and making that trip. And sometimes the teacher makes the trip to you, but you show up and there's like, it, it, it lights, it lights one another up. And then there's, further teachings there's kind of more nuances and details that are happening in context to what's going on in the greater environment in the world what the teacher is learning and discovered within themselves and that relationship goes on for a lifetime um was also you have something to lean into i mean i i experienced it really profoundly um it was it was really interesting. I was offering a training and, you know, it was like my 19th year of offering trainings. And all of a sudden I felt the room wobbling and I felt the students wobbling. And I thought, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can hold them. What am I doing? What, what do I even know? Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And it was really surprising because... I hadn't felt that way in a really, you know, initially you're kind of like, what am I doing? You know, but I had enough, 
years under my belt where I could hold the container. And I literally was like having an existential crisis. So as I was walking out of the shala, um, I checked my phone and I got a text and it was about my teacher Rama and that she had passed. And I, and I felt it before it happened because I felt like the ground moved underneath me and it became so evident of how much she was holding me in her love and holding me in the tradition in which she stood in, which by the way, she had had her own discoveries. It wasn't like a rote replication. It was authenticated through her own practice and experiences. And, and there was, you know, that's the hope of the teacher is that you're going to take what I'm giving you and you're going to take it further. It's going to, it's going to become more diversified because you're a dancer, you're an astrologer, you're, you know, whatever, you're a parent or a teacher that it's yoga is a, it's a living science. Like we discover it through living and it's growing like any science and art because it's living, you know, it's living and breathing. It's not something that's finite or stale. So, you know, I could just feel how much having that background underneath me um, stabilized me, supported me, gave me strength like something that I could lean into. And, you know, by her leaving her body, I felt it wobble. Then I had visitations from her three nights in a row, which were really profound. Um, and which she gave me like her, like the sutras of her download, like her kind of essential discoveries that, that she wove through all of her practices and teachings, you know, um, but yeah, I think, you know, that's where a lot of people, look, you got to stand on something. So is it going to be um, the, what is current in the times? Like, what do people want? What are the, you know, am I looking from the outside? All of these things that people are trying and exploring, which is wonderful, or am I going to stand in yoga as a science where, you know, first sutra Patanjali says, Atha yoga anushasanam, like I've walked this path and I'm not the first. And I'm telling you, you can do it too. You're going to have to go through your own experience. You're going to have to have your own realizations. But let me tell you, you will get distracted. There'll be times when you drop in but most of the time you're going to be looking into deeper layers of yourself. And these are the oscillations. And, you know, he like really maps it out for you so that you have a sense of confidence um, that like, okay, I know this is, this has been, this has been worked through and tried and I don't have to reinvent the wheel. As far as family, I mean, this is a big question you asked me. Um, how do we honor our lineage in our family? Perhaps first and foremost is recognition that where we are now, it is because of the work that they did. So as much as we may feel, you know, it's natural that we feel frustration and we want to cut the cord. Um, so we're like, I'm going to do it different and I'm not going to be limited in this way or dogmatic in this way. So that kind of gives us the, the raw stuff to work from. And rather than being resentful um, or pointing the finger of blame, empowering ourselves from that so there's a sense of love and respect that like you know they they literally they had all the content before from the prior generations these tools were available to them 
and they were able to take it so far. Okay. And, and nobody knows what they don't know. So now like, what am I going to do with this stuff? And again, rather than like shirking the blame, trying to point the finger, we, we take that information. And as, um, you know, Lee Lozowick said, our parents give us the wounds that only God can heal. And maybe God is a trigger word for some of us, but we can think of it as the great integrity or of source or of love that only love can heal. And that's our path, right? And as much as we want to be good parents, we can only do so much. We can't, um, you know, I think about this often, honestly, where I want to um, prevent Nico from having to experience the pains of being a child or in school and that social culture. I think of Siddhartha, right? You know, what am I going to do? Create a a fairyland where there's no illness, disease, poverty, or suffering, that that's not healthy either. So he's going to have to walk his own path. And I feel like the greatest honoring that we can do for our family is to be grateful that, you know, they've given us this life, they've given us this body, they've given us a lot of strengths. There's, it said, you know, behind the wound in the lineage is the wish for greater healing of our lineage. And that's that's what we're following is that desire. That's our dharma. So they're also giving us our dharma, even if we're doing something totally different. You know, maybe we're not a tinker or, you know, a tailor, but, but we have that content. And by um, growing our love and growing into a wholeness that embraces our humanity and also embraces that greater wish for, for seeing the beauty in the mess, that's a way of honoring our lineage in a really deep way. And I don't know if that's the right answer, but that's what it feels like to me. And sometimes it even means that we have to disengage and in that disengaging we can actually hold that person more in love because we're not gonna we're not gonna do the same vritti or the same gyrations that just dig a deeper um ditch well that answer feels good to me I don't know if it's right either, but that's, yeah, that really. We'll ask in 10 more years, right? Okay. (laughs) We'll revisit. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, just even remembering them and holding them in love. I think of a, you know, apparently Yogananda said that when, like, for instance, you're having a conflict with somebody where the mind wants to go into this um, building a case up against the other person or yourself, a simple mantra, I wish for them, you know, wholeness and peace and love. And I wish for myself wholeness and peace and love. And we can hold them in that way. And with our teachers, um, certainly, you know, honoring them in our bios, mentioning that this person shared this with me is a really nice way of doing that of um, you know it's said that we have two deaths when we physically die and then when nobody remembers our name and once we're dead I don't know that anybody you know you care but it it's um hey it's an act of love and that's that's never a bad thing of, of a remembrance you know oh Thank you. Lots of work to do from <laughs> these, these, um, just, yeah, these drops of, of re- reminding factors, remembrance. So I'm going to, I'm going to skip down to my, my last question, because I think that it ties in so nicely to this, to this way of honoring lineage and, and the way that, that we can do that even without, um, the, you know, it's like, like you said, just the act of remembering. So it's like calling forth with the mind. But 
I want you to talk to me about the indigenous heart of yoga and yoga as shamanism. Okay. You know, it's interesting where I first saw that and it was such a light bulb moment. Um, I've referred to him several times, but it was Mercia Eliad. And he was a professor um, in Europe. He wrote several books in French and then he moved to University of Chicago. And he studied shamanism and indigenous traditions. And he point blank wrote that like, yoga he was referring to the yoga sutras is a sh- is a shamanistic path and that um yoga and sh- shamanism are the technologies of ecstasy and then he chooses the word ecstasy i think he coined that which is where you're standing in your experience in a more intensified way so it's not isolating you from experience it's not like this separate event and you live in a separate sphere but it's being part of the community in which your ordinary sense of self you're so in the experience that your ordinary sense of self you can't hold on to it and Mihal Csikszentmihalyi who was also at University of Chicago I, I was friends with his son and would go to his house I had no idea he was such a pundit he mapped it out beautifully in his book flow and there's the neuroscience of <clears throat> how many bits of information the brain can hold on to in a second so when they interviewed great artists musicians scientists even medical teams they spoke about coming into such a high they they all described it as like a state of flow in which they lost their ordinary sense of self. The dancer becomes one with the music, the painter one with the brush, the medical team, it's no longer all of these individuals, but they're in a shared project. And there's a magic that happens when we come together. And then he's so beautifully, because Patanjali, he speaks about, he doesn't really talk about yoga as yoga, he uses the word samadhi, which means integration, the wholeness, um, the health of your wholeness, and that it is this um, that kind of a state where you feel yourself as something bigger and you can't hold on to your idea of self because you realize, wow, it's like we're all connected and we all are, need each other and we're independent and interdependent. So he says, you know, yoga is samadhi. It is that state. <clears throat> so Eliad, Mercia Eliad, he says, the practice of samadhi is the same as the experience of samadhi. And then when you look into shamanism, the shaman was often somebody who, um, you know, was either raised in the tradition or sometimes it was somebody who was hit, struck by lightning. That was also like you were chosen. Or somebody who really didn't fit into the culture. Somebody who felt like something was missing or they they, they just couldn't like fit into the pigeonhole. So they, they moved kind of outside of the culture. They almost became like an animal in some ways. Um, and they discovered the capacity, this is all mapped out in the sutras, to um, read dreams, to interpret dreams, to go through that veil, uh, which brings us into the subconscious, the unconscious, and even the superconscious mind. The ability to um, look for nimitam, omens in nature. And it's not that this omen is telling you this, but you're like, oh, if I can, if I can see it here, it must be happening over here. So we learn to, we learn body language. We learn, you know, the language of the birds and of nature. We, we learn to read the times and see the cycles, um, there's, you know, we shape shift our body into Rishi and Rishika and 
um, you know, into different forms of the divine and different animals. So they're shape-shifting. There's this different kind of a language that develops in which they access the um, the siddhi or the internal capacity or gift that we've come in, which is for self-healing and learning to heal themselves, they become healers for others. And through their practices of ritual, which were often, you know, they dressed in different ways. They maybe lived in a different place. They offered plant medicines. You know, we need to use, know how to use all of these, all of these mediums. Um, you know, they would maybe come in and do rituals, initiations, um, sacrifices. There was like, there was a shock component to it, which would kind of take you out of your ordinary state. So that's really yoga as a tradition of shamanism. It's like, okay, there's something missing in the world here. I'm not going to, you know, as much as like I could buy this course, you know, there's, there's, um, and, and look, it's useful for a lot of people, but what is it like the Joe Dispenza stuff, you know, and then I'm going to use my pituitary gland and I'm going to create wealth for myself and a partner. It's like deeper than that, because as Jim Carrey said, everybody should be rich and famous. So they realize it doesn't make you happy, you know, but it, it it's like we have to go through our own initiation and go through the rituals of life and discover discover it for ourselves. So, you know, I, I'm also really fascinated even about this idea of Soma. We're going to talk about this soon in the sutras. Um, but Soma, like in Greek, means your body. Somatic, right? But it's more than just your body. It's your body and your physiology and your states of mind and emotion and transpersonal states of awareness. So it's a very inclusive thing. And then soma in the yogic tradition means um, strained and pressed. We can think of the practices as being like all the stuff bubbles up and then we're going to like have to strain out the junk to collect the nectar. That's how we digest our experiences and the, the practices are squeezing and so, and then there's release and there's soaking, there's things happening in our endocrine system. As in the fourth chapter, it says you can use plant medicines. It's all about set and setting, having a, a guide, having a shaman who's going to help you do that. And that you don't need to rely on them, but they expand the vocabulary of your, of your awareness and then seeing how you have the best pharmacy in your own, in your own body that you, you can induce different states as well, where you're not just being eclipsed by the mood you're in, but you use it, you, you have that power of alchemy. So it, it really is, um, it's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, you don't even have to do a lot of yoga. Yeah. And as soon as you get to the mat and you just say, okay, I'm going to do this one pose or these two poses, and maybe I'll just do 10 minutes. Like the shifts in awareness that you can cultivate are profound. And in that way, I mean, we're circling back it is a way of self-care. Yeah. It reminds me of when you were saying in the sutra mentorship about how yoga is non-denominational, you know, it's, it's not Hindu. <laughs> and it reminds me of, you know, it's like the more I'm learning about history, it's like, yeah, we could say yoga comes from the region of India, but also like, who knows, like as much as, people traveled and, you know, and new and we're just getting new information. And, you know, and it was like, I watched this show, um, this documentary series about how in every um, indigenous culture tradition, there was this lore. It was a, a story, a, a myth about how someone came 
from the ocean um, who imparted knowledge. And it was usually depicted as half human and half serpent or fish. And it was like, oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> this law, you know, this has been going on for so long and way longer than any kind of like timestamp can go on there. But it just, it's very exciting to unpack this with you. Well, as you were saying this, and I haven't thought it out, so we'll just see what comes out. Um, yes, there's, I, I know through studies and things that there's repeating themes. I didn't know that they often came as half fish or half snake, but perhaps by being in a lineage that goes back beyond cultures, beyond fads and trends, it links us back to our most, like to our origins when we weren't even what we consider to be human today. So it's like, you know, we, we used to know that part of our family um, you know, where the, the, the horses, the, the cattle, the goats, the sheep, or even let's say before we were agrarian, when we had to follow the, the, the seasons and the rains and the herds and where things were, you know, where things were in bloom or in fruit or whatnot, that, that this was actually our home. So perhaps um, you know, I know like in the Hawaiian culture, there's the mo'o, which is this person who's kind of half lizard, but they're also kind of water beings. They're kind of like mermaids, but not mermaids. Um, you know, we, we we can see these motifs that reappear. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We forget, we forget that we're animals and that we don't just have like a garbage disposal and climate control and we vacuum you know I love what Martine Prechtel says where he's like like an indigenous person's worst nightmare is that they would have a roof that doesn't need constant fixing because it separates you from the universe so it like re-engages us into that more like tapas is that primal desire that there's something deeper that a push of the button to Amazon is not going to fulfill. And that's the creative force that's moving through us, the Shakti. Mm. Thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> and certainly the movements in yoga, right? Yeah. Where we want the tailbone to be more like Prakriti. It's more primal in its movement. And boy, was there a lot of misunderstanding there with the bandhas that you should lock the pelvic floor that cuts us off from our, our more like raw primal essence. Right. And just yeah. gets us in our head. But if we could just get the head to be clear um, and stable with all this primal energy moving through us, um, you know, maybe that's where the, that's where we can feel ourselves as being half fish. Mm-hmm or half snake. <laughs> yeah. And it reminds me of, you know, all of the description of the, the primal brain, you know, the lizard brain. And so it's like, when you were saying, you know, wh what if we're honoring our ancestors, you know, pre-human, it's like, well, we have all of those brains within our brain, you know, all of the little nuances. And I was listening to, um, Andrew Huberman on one of his podcasts and someone he was interviewing was saying, you know, that they were doing these studies on animals and that, um, and he said, don't worry. He said, no animals were harmed. <laughs> they were just studying the behaviors of, and he was saying that how, uh, the human brain as it is developed, um, in cases, all of these other kind of more reptilian brains, such as like the mouse or, you know, the like lizard or all of those things. So that's very wow. There, that <laughs> a whole kaleidoscope of universes just opened up. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. And well, that's really, you know, what it comes down to is like, you know, we've forgotten how to live in that awe. 
Um, so I feel, you know, that's what yoga is for me is like, oh my gosh, it's so much bigger than I imagined. And then by engaging in the practices, whoa, this is so much bigger. This, the endlessness of this is, is beautiful. Well, any, anything else you want to add before we close today? I mean, that was, that was pretty great. <laughs> um, I just love our conversations and, you know, I'm actually really an on your gift for inquiry and questions. It's wonderful. So to me, um, that's like the greatest honoring is that you take the time to really form beautiful questions that then become a, a channel for communion and conversation. Um, I feel really honored that you've asked these questions of me and that I get to have these conversations with you. Thank you so much. Oh, I love you. <laughs> oh, I love you. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Bhavani. Yeah. Thank you. Aloha. <laughs> Aloha. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to take these teachings on for yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. For more information about Bhavani Maki and her online and in-person teachings, including the Yoga Sutra Wisdom School, online Patanjali Yoga Sutra Mentorship, and her continuing classes and trainings, please visit www.bhavanimaki.com. That's B-H-A-V-A-N-I-M-A-K-I. You will find many resources, including sound bites of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra Samadhi Pada and Sadhana Pada for free, as well as a free yoga class. Thank you again. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations from the heart. Please join us as we continue to walk this revelatory path into deep personal inquiry through yoga as a path toward our unique, true spiritual awakening. Jaladhar Sani Basundara Gatram Jalaruhamitra Jashatru Netram Jaladhar Sani Basundara Gatram Jalaruhamitra Jashatru Netram Kalushapa